Well, good morning, River City. It's good to be with you. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, welcome to this Advent season. We'd love to get to know you. We'd love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City Church. Uh, also love to invite you into our, our sermon series. We've been working our way this fall uh, through uh, two letters that the Apostle Paul wrote uh, to the churches in the ancient city of Thessalonica. And uh, this morning, we actually come to the final chapter in these two letters. Uh, we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 this morning. And what we're going to see is that it, it's actually a bit of a unique chapter in the grand scheme of these two letters. Uh, not just because it's the last chapter, but because in it, Paul, we're going to see he he shifts his focus away from the Thessalonians' questions about Jesus' return and what that day will look like. And, and, and those have been central to every chapter in the letter so far. And we're going to see this morning, he kind of shifts his attention in this last chapter onto a different issue uh, that a number of these young believers in this chapter needed to be corrected on. And, and uh, that issue, John Lightbody is actually going to preach next week and wrap up our series dealing with the verses in this chapter about that specific thing. But what we're going to see this morning is that before Paul begins to address this other issue, he, he spends a few verses praying for the Thessalonians and inviting them to pray for him. And it would be really easy for us to just kind of skip over these verses or just kind of lump them in with the rest of the chapter, but I wanted to slow down and to make sure that we took a little bit of a closer look at these couple of verses because they show us some really important things about prayer. Specifically, they show us how prayer is connected with being a church that is characterized by growing in the gospel, making disciples, and planting more churches, which if you're new here. That's the vision of our church. That's what, that's what we want to be all about. That's our goal. That's the direction we're headed. That's the thing that drives everything that we do here at River City. And so what I want to show you as we study this morning is that prayer is an essential part of the way God has and will continue to bring that vision into reality, right? If we want to be a church that is characterized by ongoing spiritual growth that is motivated and empowered by the person and the work of Jesus, and if we want to see other people come to believe and be transformed by the good news about who he is and all that he has done both locally and globally, then we are going to need to be a church that prays about that stuff a lot. See, in other words, growing in the gospel, making disciples, planting churches, none of that is going to happen without prayer. None of that's going to happen without prayer. And that's not because it somehow like secretly depends on us. Uh, quite the opposite, actually, right? You see, prayer is so essential because all of that stuff ultimately depends on God and not on us. So I can't wait to show you this morning how prayer is connected with our vision as a church and what it looks like to be a church that's growing in the gospel and making disciples and planting more churches. And so with that in mind, let's pray and we'll dive into God's word this morning and see how prayer is connected with the way the gospel advances in us and through us. And so to that end, let's pray. God, we're so grateful for you and for our time together in your word this morning and God, we just want to come humbly again asking that you might uh, speak to us through your word and that you'd be helping us to see uh, not just the ways in which uh, prayer is connected with our vision as a church and what it looks like to be a people that's growing in the gospel and making disciples and planting churches, but we, God, we pray that you'd be empowering us by your spirit 
uh, not just to know prayer is important, but to be characterized by being a people who pray. That your the good news about who you are and all that you've done would go forth uh, from us, but first that it would go deep into us. And so uh, we need you for all of that, God, and we pray um, that you would cause those things to be true of us as a body, we pray. Amen. Well, like I mentioned this morning, we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. reads this way. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. And pray that we might be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things that we command. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. All right, so as we take a look at these couple of verses this morning and what they teach us about the way that prayer is connected with the mission and the vision of, of God's people, what I think it's helpful to kind of break the passage down into kind of two main sections. In verses 1 and 3, we're going to see Paul connecting prayer with the spread of the gospel through the church, through his people. And then in verses 4 and 5, we're going to see him connecting prayer with the application of the gospel in his people or in the church, right? And so that's going to be kind of our roadmap this this morning, the way the gospel is advancing through the church and the way it's advancing in the church and how prayer is connected with those two things, right? So like I mentioned, the, the passage opens and Paul's transitioning his focus from addressing a bunch of the Thessalonians' questions and concerns about Jesus' return and onto this other kind of related but separate issue that we're going to see John teaching us about next week. But before he moves on to these final exhortations, he asks the Thessalonians to be praying for him. And, and the missionary work that he and Silas and Timothy are doing throughout the Roman Empire. And before we even begin to, to take a look at what he specifically asked them to pray for, I just want to take a moment to highlight how significant it is that he is asking them to pray for him in the first place. Right? See, Paul was a really big deal in the early church, right? A really big deal. Not only had he planted the church in Thessalonica, like they started the church that he's writing to here, he had been instrumental in planting the vast majority of churches in the New Testament, in the whole Mediterranean area. He'd seen the risen Christ. He'd cast out demons. He'd healed the sick. The dude, Acts tells us, doesn't even raise somebody from the dead. On top of all that, he was an objectively brilliant Bible scholar and teacher who knew more about the Old Testament scriptures than basically anyone else alive at the time, and who was himself knowingly writing what we would call the New Testament. That guy, right, like top of the ladder, like MVP quality kind of character in the, in, in the early church, that guy writes to this group of believers who most of whom had come to faith in Christ through his ministry and who at the time of this letter have maybe been Christians for a year at most. Almost all that time spent without a pastor to teach them anything, right? And he asks these Christians, this brand new group of believers, he says, I, will you please pray for me? I need you to be praying for me. Essentially what he's saying is, guys, I need your help. I need your help. Just, that would be like if Michael Jordan called me and was like, Brandon, listen, I'm trying to start a new basketball team and I just like, I really need your help with that, right? <laughs> and I'd be like, um, 
I mean, I'm honored, your airness, right? But like, uh, in what universe do you need my help with that, right? Like, I am not on the, like, I don't have anything to bring to this table, right? That's how the Thessalonians must have felt. Paul is like the upper echelon of what it means to follow Christian and be a leader for the church. And that guy is asking them, he says, I need you to pray for me. I need your help. You see, what Paul understood very clearly was that everything he was doing had nothing to do with his skills and his abilities and his knowledge and his strength. It wasn't dependent on him. Everything that God had called him to do was dependent on God himself, which meant that his life and his ministry was every bit as dependent on God's as the Thessalonians' life and ministry was. And that he did not have some special access to God that they themselves did not have. You see, in God's kingdom, everyone is equally dependent on God. And everyone has equal access to him. And what that means is that as God's people, we should be marked by this humble dependence on the prayers of one another. See, the the one that all of us need God deeply. And we need him equally. And so to ask for the prayers of one another is an exercise in humility that says, we both need Jesus. We need his power at work. And so would you pray that he would be at work in me just as I pray he's at work in you? There's this incredible equality in the midst of God's kingdom. So what does Paul ask the Thessalonians to pray about with regards to the, the work he was doing in making disciples and planting churches? Well, he asked them to pray for him for two, about two things. And the first we see in verse 1, he writes and he says, Pray for us that the message of the Lord might spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. That phrase, the, the message of the Lord, it's, it's a phrase that's come up a couple of times already in Paul's writings to the Thessalonians, and it, it's always in reference specifically to the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is and all that he's done, his perfectly lived life, his substitutionary death, his victorious resurrection over death itself. It's always about Jesus, who he is, what he has done. And so Paul asked the Thessalonians to pray that God would cause this good news about who Jesus is and all that he's done to spread rapidly. The word he uses there literally means to run or to to speed ahead. It it, it kind of uh, includes this idea of like an athlete who is running in in the Olympic Games. See, Paul's not content that some people have heard the gospel already, and he doesn't just want a few more people to hear about the gospel. He wants everybody to hear about it. And what we see throughout the Bible is that 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 desire never changed for the Apostle Paul. Even near the end of his life, when he writes in Romans 15 about how he had fully proclaimed the gospel everywhere, from Jerusalem all the way to Greece, what is abundantly clear is that he's not even considering retirement. Right? He, he writes to the Romans in, in that 15th chapter, right? And he tells them about a, a trip he's planning to Spain after he gets done getting to them in Rome and preaching the gospel there, right? And so Paul is just like, all right, well, we got some done. We got a lot more to go, right? Because the, the great commission is to take the gospel from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. See, but Paul doesn't just want the message of the gospel to spread rapidly and to be heard by as many people as possible. He wants it to be received and believed by as many people as possible, just like it was by the Thessalonians. 
See, and that's what he's talking about when he, when he asked them to pray that the message of the Lord wouldn't just speed ahead rapidly, but would be honored just as it was with them. You see, to honor someone or something is fundamentally to see and to acknowledge that thing for what it really is. And that's exactly what we saw Paul commending the Thessalonians for in, in chapter 2 of his first letter. He, he writes to them about how when they had received the gospel, he says they accepted it not as human words, but as it actually is, the very word of God. See, the message of the gospel is not just some made-up human story. It is the true story written and revealed by God himself. That's what the very heart of Paul's first prayer request is that the gospel would spread as quickly as possible and be received and believed by as many people as possible. And just to be clear, Paul's prayer request here, it doesn't infer that if it takes a long time for that to happen or if it just, it's really difficult and arduous that it, that it takes a long time for people to hear and respond to the gospel, that somehow something is going wrong or that we're doing something wrong. See, oftentimes gospel ministry is slow going. It requires us to be patient and faithful over a long period of time and to keep pressing into the lives and relationships with our friends and neighbors and coworkers and relatives and especially here in a city like Dubuque, where a lot of people just fundamentally think they already know everything there is to know about God, that they don't need anything more. See, but what Paul's prayer here models for us is that, that we should always be praying that no matter how long that process takes, that God would move that process along as quickly as possible. And that like Paul, we'd have this kind of holy dissatisfaction with how far the gospel has spread how far it's gone, how much it has been honored, that we would always long for it to go further. That it might spread throughout our families and neighborhoods and workplaces, and that it might go out into every tribe and every tongue and every nation in every corner of the globe. See, but there's one more thing that Paul asked the Thessalonians to be praying about regarding the, the spread of the gospel throughout the world. And we see that in verse 2. He, he says it this way, Pray that we might be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. Right? If, if Paul's first prayer request was about kind of the offensive spread of the gospel, then what we see is that this second prayer request is clearly about the defensive protection of those who are spreading it. A tragic reality is that the good news of the gospel is not always received as good news. It's not always embraced with faith and honored as the word of God. In fact, it frequently provokes hostility and sometimes even violence. The latest data uh, highlights that in more than 75 countries throughout the globe today, Christians suffer high or extreme levels of persecution. This past year alone, almost 6,000 Christians died for their faith. Another 5,000 were imprisoned and over 2,000 churches were attacked. And I'm sure that the Apostle Paul would be absolutely unsurprised by that information. See, he's got the guy who had plenty of firsthand experiences with opposition to the message of the gospel. 
See, at the time of his writing this letter, he had been forcefully kicked out of the last three cities in a row that he went to preach the gospel in, including Thessalonica, when the Jews there who'd rejected the gospel stirred up this citywide riot, arrested the guy who was hosting Paul and his fellow missionaries, and falsely accused all of them of treason and sedition. And so Paul gets it. He understands the way that the, the message of the gospel produces this wide varying responses in people. And the reason Paul gives for this kind of evil and wickedness and the way that people respond so critically to the gospel, he says, is that not everyone has faith. Right? Not everyone believes that Jesus is God come to save them from their sin, let alone that they need saving from anything in the first place. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the gospel is a stumbling block to the Jews. It's foolishness to the Gentiles. Quoting Isaiah, Peter referred to it as a rock of offense. See, the message of the gospel is fundamentally at odds with the way of the world in every way, shape, and form. See, it's not just confusing or foolish. It's a message that at its heart is offensive to the very like the foundations of who we are. See, because the message of the gospel proclaims that there is a God and you aren't him. More than that, that you need saving from his just wrath for your sin because instead of worshiping and serving this great God as we were all created to do, we instead worship and serve ourselves. We dethrone God, we enthrone ourselves. We stage a mutinous coup against him. And we need a rescue from our rebellion. And nobody likes to hear that. That's, that's not an encouraging, like at fundamentally, that's not an encouraging message. And some refuse to listen to it themselves. Others don't want anyone to hear it at all and do everything in their power to stop that from happening. And yet the good news Paul reminds us of in verse 3 is the, that the faithfulness of God to his word and to his people cannot possibly be overcome by the faithlessness of human beings. One commentator put it this way, behind Paul's preaching and their prayers stands the faithful Lord himself who both strengthens and protects those who are his. And he does that faithful strengthening and protecting, not just from evil and wicked men, Paul says, but from the evil one, Satan himself, who is the real enemy of gospel ambassadors that gospel ambassadors need protecting from. See, that brings us back to this necessity on prayer that we've been talking about this morning and the way that prayer is such a critical, plays such a critical role as we seek to bring the good news of the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations. You see, Satan is opposed to the spreading of the gospel at any speed whatsoever. And he is the real enemy, not people. Paul writes in Ephesians 6 about how our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so as citizens of God's kingdom, as his commissioned ambassadors, the single most important thing, not the only but the single most important thing that we can and must be doing if we want to see the gospel spread, if we want to see disciples made and churches planted, is pray. It's the single most important thing we can be doing. 
You see, we are not in a culture war and we are not in a political war. We are in a spiritual war. And the only way to win that battle is if God, by his power, clears the path of opposition so that the good news of his word might speed ahead. And if he, by his power, softens the hearts of people so that they might receive and honor his word as his word and not ours. And if he, by his power, protects his people from evil men and the evil one. And so we must pray. We must pray about the spreading of the gospel and its advance in our neighborhoods, in our nations, in our family, in, in, in the world. One commentator put it this way, God intends to expand his kingdom to every nation, but he intends to do it through the prayers of his people, and so we must pray. See, but the passage, it doesn't just teach us about the need for prayer regarding the spread of the gospel in the world. We see in the second half, in verses 4 and 5, how Paul highlights the necessity of prayer with regards to the, to the application of the gospel in the church, amongst people who believe it already. He writes in verse 4, he says, We have confidence that you are doing and will continue to do the things that we command. In other words, he says, We are really confident that you're going to obey the instructions and the commands that we've given you, which as we've seen over and over throughout his letter, are not his commands, but they're actually commands he is passing on from the Lord Jesus. And so essentially what he's saying is here, we are confident that you guys are going to keep growing in your obedience to God and to his word. But did you, did you notice where his confidence lies? Right? It, it, it's not in the thoroughness of his instruction that he's passed on to them. It's, it's not in the quality of Paul's sermons. And it's not in the Thessalonians in, in the strength of their resolve or in their ability to be faithful. It was in the Lord. We are confident in the Lord that you will continually grow in obedience to his word. See, the Lord is the faithful one. Just like we saw in 1 Thessalonians 5, God's the one who sanctifies his people. He's the one who empowers and motivates their obedience to him. And Paul really believes that. And his prayer in verse 5, it, it's the proof of that belief, but it highlights for us the means by which this faithful God empowers the faithful obedience of his people. Paul prays for the Thessalonians in verse 5. He says, May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and into Christ's perseverance. You see, the way God empowers the obedience of his people is not just by giving them all the information and the list of, the list of things they should or should not be doing, although he does teach us clearly what honors him and what doesn't. And he doesn't motivate our obedience by just like instilling fear with threats of punishment, although he lovingly warns us about the unavoidable consequences of sin. Instead, the way that God empowers the ongoing faithful obedience of his people is by directing their hearts into his love and into Christ's steadfast faithfulness to them. It's what the Puritan preacher Thomas Chalmers referred to as the expulsive power of a new affection. Right? He, he said it this way. He wrote, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. And if that new affection be the love of God, then it draws 
the heart of the sinner towards him. You see, what Paul is prayer reveals and what Thomas Chalmers is writing about, he's saying that the only way that you and I choose to obey God and his word instead of whatever else our hearts desires is when those desires are overshadowed, when they're replaced by a stronger affection for him. See, being captivated with the love of Jesus and his faithful endurance for you, that is the one thing that has the power to change you from the inside out. Every other way we try to change is about, it's about molding us from the outside in. And that's why it never keeps, it never works. Because the kind of transformation that God is after is an inside-out kind of transformation, not an external conformity kind of transformation. See, and Paul gets that. He understands that the only way the Thessalonians are going to have the power and the motivation they need to obey all the commands that he's passed on to them from the Lord is if their hearts are captivated by God's love for them, proven and put on full display in Christ's endurance all the way to the cross. See, church, this is at the very heart of what we are talking about when we say that we want to be a church that is growing in the gospel. You see, the, it's not just non-Christians that need the gospel. It's Christians to, spoiler alert, every bit as much. Every bit as much. See, the way people come to faith in Jesus is by seeing and believing in his love and perseverance for them that led him to die on the cross in their place. And the way people grow up in their faith in him, the way people grow in faithful obedience to the Lord, in increasing obedience to him, is when they continually return to his great love for them and his steadfast faithfulness to them in the face of all the opposition he faced. And when they let those beautiful truths captivate the attention and focus of their hearts. See, church, I, I cannot express this more clearly. You cannot grow spiritually by just trying harder and doing better. You are not going to grow spiritually by knowing more information about what you should be doing and shouldn't be doing. The way you grow spiritually is when your heart is captivated by Jesus' glory and his goodness, his love, his faithfulness to you. Because what happens is that draws you towards him. All the other stuff is like sticks kind of poking you on the back end. And the way God motivates obedience and the way he empowers sanctification is that he woos his people towards him. See, and that's why Paul doesn't pray that they would just remember everything he told them. Or that, he'd take, that they'd take his instructions to heart. But he prays that God would direct their hearts. That God would cause their hearts to sink deeply into the truths of his love and his sacrificial faithfulness to them because he knows that that's what they really need. And he knows that he doesn't have the power to make that happen. Just like he didn't have the power to cause them to receive and believe and honor it as the word of God in the first place. I don't know about you, but that reality, that just really, that, I really needed that reminder this week. I really needed that reminder this week because the truth is, is that while it is a huge priority and passion of mine to keep showing you Jesus, to keep showing you his love, his faithfulness, his beauty, his glory, 
I am not always characterized by praying that God would cause those truths to sink deeply in your heart. And the reality is, is that that is actually the most important thing I should be doing. Because the greatest sermon ever doesn't have any power unless the Lord directs your hearts into his love. I can't do that for you. Only he can do that for you. Unless God causes his love and his faithfulness towards you to sink deeply into your hearts, you are not going to change. And you're not going to have the motivation and the power that you need to continually and increasingly obey his word. You're not going to. I'm not going to. Nobody is. And so if we want to be a people that is growing in faithful obedience to God and his word, then we must be a people that is characterized by praying that God would cause the gospel to be beautifully good news to our hearts. I've been praying that a lot for you this week and for myself and for my kids and for my family. And I want to invite you, I want to call you to be characterized by praying for that continually. See, one of the ways that we keep that good news in the forefront of our hearts and our minds is by celebrating communion. See, when you keep coming back to that reality and keep remembering it, choosing to do that together, and not because communion makes you right with God, and not because it saves you or changes your status or standing with him, but because it's an opportunity for us to remember his body broken, his blood shed as the ultimate display of his love and his perseverance for you. And so if you put your trust in Jesus or you do by the, for the first time this morning, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. There's two tables in the back, on the left and on the right, and you can dip the bread in the juice. It's this joyful reminder of Jesus' body and blood broken and shed for you. But if you're here this morning and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, maybe you're still figuring out uh, who he is or what it means to follow him, or you're realizing you've just been walking through life with this kind of head-level familiarity with him. I want to encourage you this morning. You are welcome here, but hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals, and he's not after going through the motions. He's after a heart that depends on him completely. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but River City is. And Jesus himself is. And we want to help you know him. And so wherever you're at this morning, as we sing, as we take communion, as we remember the gospel together in, in those ways, I want to encourage you, talk with God. Ask him to cause the good news of the gospel, the message of his love and faithfulness to you, to sink deeply into your heart and the heart of your fellow Christians and ask him to cause that good news to spread rapidly and to be honored, to be received and believed as the very word of God amongst your family and your friends and your neighbors and your co-workers amongst every nation under heaven. See, if we want to be a church that's growing in the gospel and making disciples and planting churches, it's going to require that we are a church that is characterized by asking God to do those things in and through us constantly. And so I want to call you church. Let us be a church that is characterized by a deep dependence on the Lord and by asking him 
to cause us to grow in the goodness of his gospel, motivated and empowered, our sanctification motivated and empowered by responding to Jesus' love for us. Let us pray that he might make it, like enable us to be a part of helping others to grow in the gospel. That we might make disciples, helping others to come to faith and grow up in their faith in him. And that he might help us to be a church that plants more churches so that other people might come to grow in the gospel and make more disciples and plant more churches until every corner of our earth hears the good news about Jesus and he returns. Let us pray towards that end. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for you this morning. And we come with hearts that are full of just a gratitude, Jesus, for your love and your faithful perseverance for us. God, your steadfastness, not just in the face of all the opposition that you faced, but in the face of our apathy towards you. God, and you are relentlessly faithful to us. Just as you are relentlessly faithful to the good news of your word spreading throughout our world, and so we ask you, God, would you cause us to be a church who is characterized by increasing obedience unto you as a response to the gospel, that we would be a church that is growing in the gospel because of the gospel, and that you would enable us to be a church that sees disciples made and churches planted in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our nation, and across the world, we pray. Amen.